0: Listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Welcome back to part two of our interview with drummer John Bermuda Schwartz. You know, it's said that if Weird Al does a parody of your song, then you've made it. I mean, everybody wants Weird Al probably these days to cover their tune because that's a sign that, you know, you're big. But not everybody is crazy about it, I guess. I'm thinking of Coolio, who does Gangster's Paradise. Weird Al turned it into Amish Paradise. I heard that he wasn't so jazzed about the
1: whole idea. Well, after an awards show... You know, they interview people backstage and one of the reporters had said, what do you think of Weird Al's parody of your song? He wasn't real thrilled about it because he didn't know what the song was about. He thought Al was making fun of the song somehow or disrespecting him or whatever. And that was absolutely not the case. He had not heard the song yet, uh, which is unusual because usually the writer of the song knows up front what Al's going to do. Al will send them lyrics or at least lyric ideas and, and get their permission. I mean, Al was certainly doing that at the time. In fact, Al was told that he had the permission to do the song, which is why we went forward with it at all. I think once he heard it, I mean, they kissed and made up later on and it was it was fine. That was what had happened, was he just, Coolio just didn't know and you know, spoke a little too soon and was not probably as gracious as, as he could have been, as a lot of people are. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody's, uh, one other person actually did say they weren't thrilled with what Al had done with the song they did. That was Billy Ray Cyrus. And that was actually a very obvious poke at Achy Breaky Heart. I mean, that was a poke at the song, and therefore Billy. Billy didn't write that song, so Al didn't have to get his permission. So when uh, Billy's people said, you know, you can't release that song, by the time they heard it, it was already out. And They said, well, it's too late, and also the writer of the song gave us permission, so... Sorry again, but you know, it wasn't really nasty. But I mean, it was just—it was a very obvious poke at the original song and and the artist somewhat. And Al doesn't always do that.
0: How can you avoid a target that big?
1: Well, uh, yeah, Al was not the only person that was making fun of that. And you know, I'm, I'm Billy, I'm sure, took a lot of heat from a lot of critics.
0: Did he ever do anything uh, Weird Al with the Macarena? It seemed like that would be an obvious one.
1: It yeah, was, you know that that was certainly anything that is so big. Yeah, or, or maybe you know, needlessly big is a good target. Yeah. And, and yeah, Macarena certainly would have been, Uh, I don't recall, I mean, you know, possibly he had that ruminating around in his head. I I don't know, but no, that we, it never got to the band stage of, you know, how you guys feel about doing a a Macarena parody.
0: I notice you like to use Ludwig drums quite a bit. Is that your favorite?
1: Big fan of Ludwig. I started uh, playing in the sixties on Ludwig drums. I've always had Ludwig drums in my life. And very associated with, people just associate me with Ludwig, which is nice, but I wasn't actually a Ludwig artist until 2007. So, you know, the official relationship didn't come till later, but big fan of Ludwig drums. I have a lot of, a lot of drums, a lot of kits. Most of them are Ludwig. You know, most stuff I bought over the years, a lot of vintage stuff, they're just Great drums. It's a great company. The people that work for the company are, are uh, fabulous, and it's a really good relationship. And it's just it's one of those legacy names. There's only really one other name that's been around longer than Ludwig, uh, which is Gretsch, has been around about twenty some odd years longer than Ludwig. You know, I, I could play any drums I want. I'm certain that uh, any company would be very happy to accommodate me and, and have me on their roster. I like the sound. I like the vibe of the company. I like being associated with the name, it's a good fit all around. So yeah, I'm very, very, very happy. uh, Now,
0: I'm not a drummer, but I'm a guitar player, but I love Ludwig. I always love Ludwig drums.
1: They are, you know what, if if the drum is made well, and they are, or if it's a vintage kit in particular, Ludwig's pre-64 and like about 68, 69 through about the mid-70s were very, very golden eras. They made a certain type of shell. At the time, which they make again now, by the way, but those vintage drums are very highly sought after. In fact, for most companies, they're older drums. You know, Gretsch, for example, Gretsch lovers love the old Gretsch drums. New ones are good, they're quite good, but they really, you know, I want a 50s or 60s Gretsch kit or whatever, and they all have a certain vibe. But, you know, things, instruments, well, like guitars, you know, like a 57 Strat or whatever, you know, is different, you know, than today's Strats. And those are more highly sought after and highly expensive guitars. Is that right? A 57 is a Strat? Could yeah. be a Strat? no. Okay. You know, I just know that the older guitars command a very high price, as do old drums. Yeah. So, and and I do have some of these old Ludwig drums and they're pretty, I, I try not to take them out too much because I don't want to beat them up. I'm not a hard player. I just like to take very good care of my my vintage gear. Some stuff I do drag out. I got a lovely 59 Ludwig kit uh, with its original plastic heads. some of the first plastic heads back in the day. And I only use those to record with one of my bands because they just have a certain sound and I play a certain way. You You just adapt to what the drum is and suddenly you start, you get that feel, you start playing like that. And, you know, some kits that sound a certain way, you can't really do... Uh, certain styles with them. You know, drummers like to say, you know, John Bonham had a certain sound and a certain feel, you know, or Ringo too or whatever, but, but Bonham in particular, Oh, you, you could put him behind a little toy drum set and it would still sound like John Bonham. Well, that's not completely true. He would play the same parts as much as he could. It certainly wouldn't sound like him.
0: Well, he wouldn't have that 26 inch kick for one thing.
1: Right. And you wouldn't have the, all the, the uh, effects that, you know, that, uh, not the effects, but the way they recorded the drums back then, you know, with a mic up a hallway, you know, from the studio or whatever, you know, Got to it. get sort of that that distance and that echo, not the echo, but the reverb, the yeah. space. If I played a kit like that, I would play it like a toy kit <laughs> and it would sound like a toy kit, you know, and I would, if I played Bonham's drums, suddenly I would play Bonham parts on it because that's what the kit sounds like it wants to do. You know, I'm just, I've been very happy with the way Ludwig drums sound uh, and, and the new ones, they're making fabulous new drums. And most of what I play are the new drums.
0: You've got a black beauty. also.
1: I've got a couple of black beauties couple and, of them. and <laughs> one, I, well, not, not a, I, I, I had a black beauty from the twenties wow. and I, I sold it recently, the new black beauties. And, and there's a brass drum. Uh, I've been using the same black beauty on tour since 2007. Very, very happy with that. And I've got, and that's a six and a half by 14 for drummers that are paying attention a couple of years ago, Ludwig issued an 8x14 Black Beauty. That's an, a new size for the Black Beauty for them. And that's a really, really, really nice drum. That's one of my two favorite drums in life. Not because it's deep and I like to tune it low, but it's deep and I like to tune it moderately high. And that little extra depth from 6.5 to an 8-inch, there's a little more meat. Not low end, but there's a little more range, I think, that that the drum gets that... That acoustically, I mean, you could put that all in electronically, you know, if it's mic'd, but when you sit and play it acoustically, it adds that, that fullness, that complexity of, of all these, of a different range of sounds. And that's, that's one of my two favorite snares happens to be a Ludwig. And actually my other favorite snare, if if anyone's asking is a Ludwig, uh, six and a half copper phonic. It's a copper shell, same design. And that's a very, very magic snare, uh, very complex, has, has all the elements of all of the other drums, all of their other trademark snares, kind of all rolled into one. It's, you know, being a metal snare, it's a little bit woody even because of the copper. There's a lot going on, but everything that's going on is just what you want from that aspect of the drum. It's just the focus that a brass drum has. It's just the There's a little bit of banginess and honk that one of their bronze drums has. There's a little bit of the airiness that their aluminum, that a regular Supra has. There's a little bit of wood in there. It's just, there's a lot going on and it's just the right elements from each of their snares all rolled into this one snare. So that had been my favorite snare till the 8x14 Black Beauty came out. And I thought, it's not better. It's just, that's its own thing, but it's the best Black Beauty there is, in my opinion. And so I'm, I'm very, I, I, when I say I have hundred and I think I have 112 snares now. I, I honestly, I would be very, if I had to pick, I couldn't pick one, but I would pick two and it would be those two drums. In fact, I just, after this pandemic, I hadn't played for 16 months and this first gig back, I brought out the copperphonic, set it up and we started playing and it's like, yeah, I remember why I love the snare. You know, it hasn't, that hasn't faded it's still there for me. It's still an amazing snare. So between the two of those, I alternate between the two of those on local gigs. I can't take the Black Beauty on the road because I had cases designed specifically for the other size drum. So there's a slot that it goes into and the 8x14 won't fit in there. And I thought about, can I modify it? Maybe I could put it in a separate case. I really love the drum. I mean, I like the one that's on the road, but the 8x14, just a little bit, it's it's a little bit better. And, I, and the mic would like it better as well. There's certain gear that I really, really like. But again, that's my two favorite snares in life are Ludwigs.
2: Aquarius! Just travel in your future when your tongue freezes to the back of a speeding bus. Fill that void in your pathetic life by playing whack-a-mole 17 hours a day. Try to avoid any Virgo. Bola Of the planets and the stars could have a special deep significance Our meaning that exclusively applies to only you But let me give you my assurance that these forecasts and predictions Are all based on solid scientific documented evidence So you would have to be some kind of moron not to realize That every single one of them is absolutely true Where was I? A big promotion is just around the corner For someone much more talented
0: Here's something really interesting. The Grammy Award-winning polka artist Frank Yankovic. I understand he is not related to Weird Al at all. Any any thoughts?
1: No, that's that's true. He is not. However, that didn't stop them from working together on a couple of things.
0: I didn't know they worked together.
1: A, a little bit. We first met Frankie in maybe 1985 or 1986. Al was asked to put together a little medley, a polka medley for the Grammys of the song of the year or something like that. And I forget what five or six songs we did a polka medley of, but Al thought it would be very cool to shoot live. And we recorded it live him, Frankie, a tuba player, Tommy Johnson on tuba, the late Tommy Johnson, and who's recorded with us before. And then me on drums. And we were out by the pool, I think at the universal Hilton hotel in universal city. And they had a camera crew out there and we played this polka medley of the songs that were nominated for that thing with Frankie on on accordion. I remember Al saying that Frankie he wasn't used to some of the rock changes, some of the chord progressions and he had to like really guide Frankie through it. But Frankie did fine and and you know was smiling and you know was was the real personality and Al was being wacky and I was just sitting in the back, you know, playing and Tommy Johnson on on the tuba, you know. Anyway, it was very cool. That was not the last time they worked together. They had worked on a couple of songs on Frankie's albums. I don't remember if he sang or, or contributed some accordion playing. I don't know why he would need to with Frankie there, but so they worked on a couple of things that that appeared on actual on Frankie's releases. But no, no relation. I think Al had told me once he does actually have an uncle Frank, but it's not Frank Yankovic.
0: I mean it's not a very common name. I mean the no. fact that these these two giants of the accordion, when when I think of accordion, I think of Frank Yankovic, but I also think of Weird Al, of course. And I mean Yankovic.
1: I you yeah, and it's and it's an understandable assumption, and one that's been made many many times. When Frankie Yankovic died, somebody had called Al at the press or something had got a hold of Al. He said, "We're, we're so sorry to hear about your father." He said, "What? What?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah
1: Frank Frankie Yankovic." Died. He says, Frankie's not my father. <laughs> hung off the phone. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> uh, no. So, so that, you know, the mistake isn't always a pleasant experience. But no, it's understandable why people would think. I, I probably asked him that in the beginning, too.
0: Al is such a good singer. His pitch, just his approach to, you know, his sense of harmony, all that stuff. Have you ever heard him sing to be serious? I mean, I, I always wondered what his naked voice would sound like without that affected, weird Al kind of accent sort
1: uh, of yeah no he he can well for example uh one more minute and this was early on when Al was still being wacky it's not completely straight ahead but you can really hear that he can actually sing and then also when we were originally doing the parodies you know he would often do an affected voice but again as we got more and more concerned with really nailing the original production and sound and and vibe of the song if someone was singing normally you know with a pretty voice he would do that. He would sing in that same way. And I, I'd have to look at a list of songs and tell you which ones are, are them. He can sing very, very well and has a very nice voice, has has a several nice voices. He's a very vocally, uh, he's a chameleon.
0: You know, it's interesting, John, in your upbringing, you come from a musical family. And the irony is you started on accordion, didn't you?
1: Uh, yeah, I had a, a little, it was a kid's accordion. I was probably eight or nine. I was probably eight, I guess. It was just before I inherited my brother's drums. They were in the next room, but I mean, it hadn't even occurred to me to play drums, but they wanted me to, to learn a, a you know, a melodic instrument. So I had a kid's accordion, which I think they rented. It had, it was, it was small, you know, being a kid, you have a small accordion and I could play it well enough. I mean, I learned to read music. I mean, and, and, uh. I can still pick up an accordion and play something that I, I learned at the time poorly, mind you. But, but I, I had kind of formal musical lessons, you know, on a, on a real musical instrument, and yeah, accordion of all things. Now, my dad had played accordion. In fact, I still have his accordion, hmm. and and uh, it's a full size accordion. It's even too big for Al. Al uses what's called a ladies accordion. They shouldn't call it that anymore, but it's a mid-size accordion. And that's mostly because he's very active on stage when he's wearing the accordion. Now, nowadays he's not playing accordion on every song, but in the beginning, you know, that allowed him to, to, uh, move around freely because it wasn't this giant heavy accordion. But anyway, my dad's accordion is a full size accordion. And I, I picked it up in this last year. I got so bored staying at home. I actually took the accordion out, picked it up and tried to remember to play the thing. And it's like, And it sort of came back. I mean, the finger muscle memory came back to me a little bit. At any rate, my brother had been playing drums and he was switching to guitar. So I inherited his drums. We had our own bedrooms in the house across the hall from each other. So the drums moved from his room into my room. I ditched the accordion and started to take drum lessons, actually. Uh, And at the same time, listening to, you know, this was... uh, late 1965. So the Beatles were well in my musical vocabulary and, and, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, I think, you know, the beach boys, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of pop music back in the days when a radio station would play the up and coming young groups, as well as pop stuff, Tom Jones, Petula Clark, they would play Motown. You know, I'm taking formal lessons as well as learning the, the workings of the kit while listening to these other songs. Uh, basically on the radio. I mean, I had a record player and and you know a certain collection of records. Whenever I did something good, my parents would buy me the latest Beatle album. So I would play along to those kind of things. And then the drum lessons taught me more about reading drum parts and technique and things like that. In fact, I had a whole kit at home. And when I would take the lessons, I would just work on the snare. I was just working on snare parts. And then very gradually, they would start working in the other pieces of, of the drum set. So I had been listening carefully to records, you know, in the mid sixties, you know, 15 years, well before I needed to with Al, And, and that's kind of where that training came. And when I listen to anything today, I hear parts, I hear production, you know, I hear effects. I hear all the things that go into making the record as opposed to maybe even hearing the vocals, hearing the lyric, you know, I mean, there can be some really sappy, lyrically sappy records out there, but if the production is cool, I will really, really like it. And I can sit and listen to a record of the record. Uh, you know, a song and, uh, and, and extract the parts out of it, you know, not thinking I'm ever going to have to reproduce it that way, but that's kind of how I hear things now. And it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, I, I really sort of instantly dissect everything I hear. Consequently, I like a lot of music. A lot of the kids that are coming up and the YouTube sensations and the Pop Tarts and you know the Ariana Grande and all of them, I hear their stuff. And production-wise, there's some really good stuff. You know, you go yeah. back and listen to Backstreet Boys and In and Britney and and stuff like that. All that kind of pop stuff that most musicians like to put down. There's some serious production. In fact, we did a Backstreet song. Is it Backstreet or In They're basically the same. We did. We did. I want it that way. Called it eBay.
0: Oh, yeah. Said
1: I want it that way, found it on eBay. Anyway, that was not my first venture into, you know, listening to those kind of things. But I really had to dig into all the sounds and, and, you know, that there's like 15, 16 drum and percussion tracks going on in that song. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on that, again, when they produce those things, they're just sitting at at a keyboard punching out parts and they come up with a rhythm and a pattern and then they you know, make four bars of that. And then they just loop it, you know, 20 times and they make a song. I have to go in and hear from scratch, every little silly, every little triangle hit, just these minute things, little pops, little swishes, little filtered sweeps, anything that goes into that, I get to reproduce because that's kind of how I've set myself up and have always done it. Al's never had to come back and rework anything that I've done because I didn't quite get it. I always get it. So he just expects that of me. And therefore I don't want to not do a good job on that. I don't ever want to hear that. I didn't quite get it.
0: How much of your drum sound is doing just that you honing in on that sound? And how much is the way the album is produced by Al or whoever else?
1: Well, there's a certain amount of leeway and, and EQing and affecting and even sample replacing. Uh, You know, if I do an acoustic part on something uh, you know, they can very easily drop in a sample of, of a different snare. And if, if my snare, you know, I, I think it sounds one way where we're doing it, then, you know, when they're in there mixing it and they sort of hear it in context, it's like, you know, the snare's not, it's not quite there. We're not going to be able to EQ it quite where it needs to be. Let's get a sample of what we know we want to hear and we'll just replace it. Every time he hits the snare, it'll be this other sound instead on all of the things where I've gone in and designed the sounds and it's all samples. I don't think any of those have ever had to be replaced or otherwise corrected. There may be a little bit of EQ necessary because they may hear something in the studio, again, in context of all of the parts together that I'm not hearing when I'm listening to the original recording and pulling sounds out. You know, I listen to my sounds, and I listen to the original recording and and I get it where I think it's there. And maybe it's different once they're in the studio. I wanted to get a part so badly. I think it was on the last album. It was for a song called Inactive, which is Imagine Dragons Radioactive. Yeah, Jim was doing all the other parts, all the other pads and sounds, and I was doing all the drum and percussion parts for the song. And I couldn't quite get the snare dialed in. You know, I I'm never concerned with what they did. I'm only concerned with what does it sound like and how can I do that? What do I have to do to do that? Because I, you know, everyone's always got all these plugins and other gear and other ideas and other tools at their, at their hands that I don't have. So knowing what they did is very little of a help. It's only frustrating. I was like 90% there, which is not very close. And it was very signature sound. And I decided, and it was the first time I've ever done it, I decided to reach out to the original drummer. Now it was a programmed song to begin with. Daniel Platzman was the drummer with Imagine Dragons. Very unlikely that he programmed it, but I I went to him as the person who's in charge of the drum parts, I guess, and asked him, I said, uh, you know, I've really tried, I've never done this before, but I really, I really want to nail that snare. Is there any way I can get a sample of it? And I didn't hear back for a couple of weeks and we were getting ready to go in. I thought, you know what? I, I'm just going to have to go in. I I can maybe work with that last sound I've got and tweak it some more, but I'm just going to have to give that to them. And they're going to have to do the rest of the magic in the studio because there was like a reverse snare that led up to it. And I got, I got some that were pretty close, but again, I, I knew it wasn't quite there. So I I was going to go sit down at the computer and work on it and send it off that day. And I had gotten an email and it was from, and I forgot the guitar player's name, but he had sent me a section of the snare track from the song with the actual snare in there. And I listened to it and it's like, I know, there's like a sweep sound. There's a little gap between the reverse and then the actual hit. There's all these things that these little subtle things that go into it that I could not hear in the context of their song. So I I assembled it into the the track the snare stem for that song, and I sent it off. I you know emailing parts in like that, and I I put a note with it. I said this is the snare. Do not EQ it. Do not compress it. Don't try to level it. This is really the snare from the song. Don't mess with it. This track goes in as is. turns out that they're all fans of the band. They're all fans of Al's. And they were just like really thrilled. They were really happy that uh, they could help.
0: So what's next, John? I mean, COVID is receding. A tour, another album. What's next for you guys?
1: Well, we're we were supposed to be on the road in 21. We we're supposed to be out, you know, this year, and that's got postponed. There aren't any dates locked in at this point. But we're hoping if everything goes well and, and goes right, and people do what they're supposed to do, and things get back to normal, that we'll be out in 2022, and uh, hopefully 2023. You know, Al's still a young man. He's he's going to be 62 this year, so he's. he's young. That's, that's nothing. You know, we're all on Medicare. So it's like, you know, weird in the Medicare band, uh, you know, something happens on the road, you know, we go to a hospital, it'll cost us a hundred bucks and we're good. we get a new heart for a hundred bucks. It's great. And, uh, but, but hopefully we'll be on the road, uh, in, in 2022 and, and make up for some lost time. It'll be great to, to play with the guys again, as far as recordings, Al's contract was not renewed. He didn't renew it. Sony wanted to, you know, sign him up for another few years or whatever. And uh, I think made him a very nice offer, you know, back in 2014 when our last album came out and the way records are selling, or I should say not selling there just was sort of no reason for Al to be tied to the label anymore. Um, you know, in terms of promotion, you know, Al is certainly capable of doing that uh, on the level that the label has uh, had to deal with, you know, YouTube and other social media, Al is certainly capable of promoting stuff himself and getting it set up with, uh, you know, Apple Music and and Amazon Music and Google Play and all the rest. Didn't need a label for that. But again, more importantly, records are just not selling now. Ironically, that last album, Mandatory Fun, was a number one album. Debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, the real album charts, not just comedy. Of course, it's you know all of the albums chart in comedy, and it was our third top ten album. Actually, our last three albums were top ten albums, but this one was number one. Debuted at number one, with Al knowing that he was not going to renew. So what that means is, it's more likely that if Al comes up with something new, and he will, uh, that we would record just that one, possibly two songs, and those would go out as singles
0: quite a body of work you guys have put out What is it? 14, 15 albums.
1: It's 14 studio albums. 14 studio uh, albums. Yeah. A couple of live DVDs, video DVDs. Um, and there was a box set that Sony put out uh, uh, after, after the contract, you know, a, a retrospective of Al's career in a box. that was an accordion.
0: Yes. Uh, I've seen that.
1: And, and uh, put out albums on vinyl that had not been on vinyl before. And they included a rarities disc. In that, which I think they would be very smart to market on its own, because they only pressed ten thousand copies of that, and so I know the fan. Now a lot of these songs have been heard. I mean, there's very little on there that's worth that they couldn't be found on YouTube, but the fans, you know, want it all in one place. They want the quality, and it. While it doesn't qualify as a studio album, it was actually a fifteenth album, and it's called Medium Rarities, as in medium rare. And uh, I don't know if Al came up with that title or not. He probably did. That sounds like something Al would Great. would do. And it was a picture of him in like a little, like a supermarket, like a, a little meat tray with cellophane over him, like a little styrofoam tray, you know, in here with cellophane over him and a label that says medium rarities.
0: Fantastic work. I mean, when you guys go out on the road, I'm going to come out and see you. Love your drumming. Love Weird Al's music. Uh, Thank you. Just wonderful to talk to you today, John. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it.
0: Anytime. And w- when that next book comes out, uh, blue, gold, yellow, orange, and green, and weird all over. I- I wait, it, wait a minute. What is
1: it? Blue, yellow. Let me, I'm writing this down. Blue,
0: yellow, gold, orange, green, and weird all over. Just just a little idea. You, that's also so, free. You can use that if you want. Oh, well, thank you. So,
1: so <laughs> sort of a tie-in to the other book.
0: That's blue, right. Okay. Thank you so much, John.
1: You're welcome, thank you, Rick.
2: I hate it. And you can't send it back Just eat it, eat it Get yourself an egg and beat it Have some more chicken, have some more pie It doesn't matter if it's boiled or fried Just eat it, eat it Don't you make me repeat it
0: Have a banana, have a it. it doesn't matter what you want. You've been listening to The Rick Z Show I'm your host, Rick Z. produced and engineered every week by Josie Grant, co-produced this week by Dan D'Elia. Did you know that? No. Now you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Come back next week and who knows who we'll have here, but it'll be somebody good. We hope to see you then.